here at New Life Press, and we are continuing along in a series in our study of the book of Nehemiah, in which we've entitled this series, Rebuild and Restore. And so let me read the passage for us, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word for us this morning. Starting with verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when this city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant's servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him the time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, and that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And this is God's word for us today. Well, continuing along in this series in Nehemiah, and you may be wondering what sort of relevance does this have for 21st century modern people like us, but we can relate to Nehemiah on several levels. One, as we met him last week in chapter one, he's a very accomplished and prolific and gifted man. He's a strategic genius. He's an organizational leader. He's someone that's high on status because the cupbearer, if you remember from last week, was a place of prominence. Kaber was someone who is prestigious, was loyal, had a lot of access to the king, and it was a, a very esteemed position. So he's high up on the corporate ladder. And Nehemiah is this guy who is a strategic genius, but at the same time, we met him last week and noticed he's deeply compassionate. He's humble and he's faithful. He prays to God, and he has deep love for his people, as he looks back in Judah and sees his temple and his people all in shame and ruins. So there's much more to Nehemiah than we can recognize at first glance, and we can relate to him on that level. We want to be accomplished, we want to be sacrificial, we want to be uh, someone of, of prominence, of prestige, but we also want to figure out how can we be faithful in our calling as Christians. And so that's where Nehemiah actually gives us lessons about spirituality in the real time. In other words, how do you live your life from Monday to Friday in the workplace or at school or you have a big project or a big promotion, a big meeting? How do you live your life in the everyday matters as you continue to be faithful to Jesus? It's spirituality in the real time. One commentator actually said the theme of Nehemiah could be explained in this way. God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Basically, God is the one who's in control of all things, and he moves all things. It's his providence, but yet there's a real human agency and choice that you and I make. And Nehemiah begins to show us in chapter 2 how he transitions from private spiritual matters in chapter 1 to show his faith in public matters and duties in chapter 2. 
And he shows us in real time how spiritual matters can be applied and lived out, and we can apply this to our lives today. So there are three things that we'll see about the daily spiritual practical matters of life in the life of Nehemiah. Three things that Nehemiah does. First, he trusts in God. Secondly, he prays. And then thirdly, he prepares. So he has a big ask. He wants to get permission to build his temple. A lot of money, a lot of people, a lot of resources. He's scared to death. He is anxious down to his bones. And so he's going to show us how to apply his spiritual life in this big ask. He trusts God, he prays to God, and he prepares for God. So let's consider this. The first thing you notice is that Nehemiah, he trusts God. Now, this is his chance. Do you remember the story? He's going to go back and he wants to rebuild the temple. It's far away. He needs permission. He needs money. He needs human resources, financial resources. He's going to ask King Artaxerxes for time off to build his temple. So he's going to trust God that God will open up a way to do this. This is his chance. He's about to make his big ask. Now, have you ever made a big ask in life? For those of you who are in fundraising and in advancement for any organization, they always call this, you got to make the ask. This is you present a vision, a compelling vision, you pull on their hearts, and you make an ask for donations. Maybe the ask you have is really just permission to hang out with your friends. Maybe the big ask is going to be someone's hand in marriage. Maybe the big ask is going to be your boss to your boss for a promotion or more money. But everyone has some level of experience of a big ask. And this is where Nehemiah finds himself. This is where God opens the door to make a big ask, to get permission from the king to build the walls. He needs human resources, he needs time, he needs financial resources, he needs raw materials. This is a really big ask. And do you know how Nehemiah felt right before he was going to ask his question? Verse 2 says this, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. Literally, that word there means a terrible fear came over me. It's another word, it's like a panic attack which is so unusual for a guy like Nehemiah because Nehemiah, later in the book, he's cool, he's calm, he's composed, but he's scared to the bone. He's scared to death. In fact, the rest of the book presents a picture of Nehemiah in which he's totally undaunted in the face of increasing adversity. He's cool, calm, and collected, but this one big ask, it humanizes him. It's actually kind of comforting. He's anxious like you and me. He's scared to death. He even prayed five months to prepare for this one conversation, but he's scared. You know, there was a chart that I once saw that said, in this chart, the overlap between sadness and fear on this chart, the overlap between sadness and fear is what we call anxiety. And I believe that in some level, that's what Nehemiah is experiencing. This overlap of fear and sadness, this anxiety, this fear that has gripped him. Paul Tillich has once said, as he perhaps oversimplifies, that in the history of our culture, there are basically three types of anxieties that have captured the generations in the country and the culture we live in. The first type of anxiety was the fear of death around the time of the ancient world and Middle Ages. The second type of anxiety, he says, was the fear of guilt. That was the time of the Reformation and years after the Reformation. The third type of fear that you and I perhaps could resonate the most with is called meaninglessness. That's the 20th century and later. Meaninglessness is this fear of not really mattering. You want relevance, significance. Why do you exist? You search for a reason for being. The buzzword among the younger folks of this culture is that you search for authenticity. That's a fear that many of us have. Can I be 
truly who I'm called to be? Can I have purpose? Can I have a reason for existence? But we all relate to these types of anxieties. And so does Nehemiah. He probably relates to all of these. He's scared. He's seeking for relevance. He feels guilty for the people back in Judah. He has fear of death because this ask could actually lead the king to execution. So Nehemiah relates to this. Everything is being built up to this moment for Nehemiah to ask the king, please give me permission and all the resources of your kingdom so I could build up my walls. Now, it's an interesting point. If you know your Old Testament, this happens in the kingdom of Persia and palace, and there's another book of the Bible that also happens in the kingdom of Persia and a palace in Persia. That's the book of Esther. Esther has the same experience in the same palace as Nehemiah. And I like to think that this one big ask that Nehemiah is scared to ask for could really be applying the one famous verse in Esther in which Esther applied to Nehemiah, maybe thinking to himself, who knows, maybe God brought me to come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Everything's being built up for this ask. Now, think with me. You can understand why Nehemiah is anxious with this overlap of fear and sadness. There's a ton of weight on his shoulders, politically, religiously, and individually. There's a contrast between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah where you could tell that as accomplished as Nehemiah is, there's a huge chasm between these two guys. King Artaxerxes, he was the most powerful man in the world. He was the king of Persia for 40 years. His territory expanded in a place in our passage called Beyond the River, which is where Jerusalem was. In fact, the commentators will note that the city of Judah was about 900 miles away from Susa, from where this has taken place. Ezra says that Artaxerxes had absolute control of the city of Jerusalem. He had control over everything that happened in that city, the flow of people that went in and out of that city into Jerusalem. In fact, the Greek writer said about Artaxerxes that he had long hands and long arms because his power and reach was far-reaching. Artaxerxes was a non-Christian. He followed this pagan religion called Zoroastrianism, which is this religion about light and fire, about the forces of good and forces of evil. They worshipped a god called Ahura Mazda. And if that sounds familiar, you're absolutely right. Zoroastrianism is where the company, the car company Mazda gets his name for. Mazda is the god of harmony, intelligence. Mazda is a god of coherence and harmony and peace. So it's a great name for a car company, but it's a heretical pagan religion. Which, by the way, if you're driving a Mazda today, don't worry about it. You're fine. Go ahead and drive it. Just don't worship your car, and I think you're good. But that's Artaxerxes. It was the official religion of Persian Empire, Zoroastrianism. In fact, in one BBC article, it said this. One could well argue that the cosmic battle between the light and dark sides of the Force and Star Wars has Zoroastrianism written all over them. So if you're thinking, that seems so foreign, actually, one of the biggest cultural icons in cinematography, and now at Disneyland, if you ever rode Ride of the Resistance, is actually Zoroastrianism. So we can relate to this. They're so different. You have Nehemiah and you have Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is a Jewish person, a member of God's covenant people. Nehemiah's covenant blessings and covenant promises. He's a member of the broken and humiliated people back in Jerusalem. He's a member of these people whose province is under King Artaxerxes' power, but he worships Yahweh, the true God. 
And Artaxerxes, he's a Persian, he's a Gentile, he's on top of this great empire, he's as a pagan worshiper, he worships Mazda, and then there's Nehemiah, he's a servant, the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes is the king. There's a huge chasm between the two. They're separated economically, ethnically, religiously, politically, they're, they're separated by everything that you can imagine that separates two people. They're divided. There's a wide gulf between these two. And now Nehemiah has to come up and ask him for time off, for money, resources, raw materials, for permission and authority. It's a big ask. And what does he do? He feels scared to his bone. You can relate to this. But why do I name this first point that he trusts God? Because as scared as he is, he still makes the big ask. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he trusts in God's covenant promises to make this ask because he's praying for five months. He gets his opportunity. He finally gets a private discussion with the king and the queen, and he's going to ask for a lot of stuff. He trusts in God in the moments where we feel God is so far away from the circumstances. And how do I know he trusts God? Because in this conversation, when he talks to Artaxerxes, the second point, he prays to God for help. He prays. Let me break this down for us. The conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes breaks down into six equal parts, six points of conversation. The king speaks three times. Nehemiah responds three times, six. And in the first half of the conversation, it's preparation for Nehemiah to make the big ask. And then the second three parts of the conversation is the result of the big ask. Nehemiah, in this conversation of six parts, we see that there's a reversal in the person of Nehemiah. He goes from being scared to death to a man of power. He goes from someone who had nothing in sadness to someone who was on mission because there was a reversal as he met the great king. And did you know that in the six-part conversation, in this reversal of Nehemiah's circumstance in his life, did you know that right in the middle of this six-part conversation, right in the middle is the key to unlocking the blessings and the power and the mission of God? Right in that middle, scared to death, six-part conversation, right in the middle, there's a key in which first three parts are before the middle, and the second three parts are after the middle, and there's a transition there. Do you know what that transition is? The middle, sort of the hinge that caused the reversal in the life fortunes of Nehemiah? was right there in verse 4. Verse 4 is that middle part of the six-part conversation. He says this, I pray to the God of heaven. That's the key. He prays. That transitioned his reversal in life. Now, friends, don't misunderstand what's happening here. This is quite remarkable. Nehemiah is literally before the king. Why do you look so sad? How can I be happy when my people are all destroyed back in Judah? And there's a reversal of fortune. Right in the middle, in the conversation, you can imagine Nehemiah talking to the king and queen, and he just sings and prays really quickly, one, one second prayer. No one noticed it, but in his heart, he depended upon God, and he says, God, help. That's his prayer in verse 4. God, help me. God, please give this to me. It's like one second prayer. All the commentators, or at least half of them, call this prayer an arrow prayer. Because it's a prayer that's succinct and short, and it shoots right up in the moment that Nehemiah needs it. Talking to the great king, and you say, God, help. That's his prayer. Francois Fenelon has once said, make good use of chance moments. 
And many of you live in chance moments. So how do you apply practical spirituality in your life? You have chance moments. There's a moment where maybe for the physicians, you have a difficult patient, a difficult operation. Maybe as a financial advisor, you're someone that needs an answer to help someone who's in dire straits because of COVID-19. Maybe you're a teacher and you have a difficult student. Maybe you're a parent and you have a difficult moment with your husband or your child or you have traffic. There's all kinds of chance moments in which you could respond in anger and self-righteousness and impatience and anxiety. And if you in those chance moments, you just applied what Nehemiah did and did an arrow prayer, God, help. Maybe just a little bit. You could be godlier, a little bit less angry, a little bit less anxious. This arrow prayer. You know, a couple of times where I, I've used these arrow prayers, and by the way, you know, sometimes we say in life, oh, Lord, help us, but some catastrophic thing happens. You know, maybe that's a real arrow prayer. I don't know. I can't judge the person's heart. But at least for me, where I find myself giving a lot of error prayers is actually when I'm talking to people in the middle of counseling and conversations. Because, man, I'm hearing people's broken stories and the issues that they're dealing with. I have absolutely no idea what to say. They're looking to me to give some sort of wisdom and insight. I don't know what to tell them. And in those moments, I kid you not, because I've studied Nehemiah even 20 years ago, and I remember this prayer, help. And that's what I do. Literally in the moment. <laughs> People don't know this, and so if we ever meet for counseling, don't think I'm just always praying. But yeah, I do do that. Help me to understand this person. Help me to apply God's word. How do I love this person that's before me? God, help, because I have no idea what to do. If you look at the prayer life of Nehemiah, <clears throat> what's interesting is that in chapter 1, he had foundational lifelong prayer. Day and night, praying for five months. And then in chapter 2, he has an arrow prayer. He shoots it right up. Friends, in terms of self-evaluation, you want to pray both. You want sustained, private, prayer time away, day and night prayer, by yourself, between you and God. But there's in the moments of everyday life, you have arrow prayers in the spiritual practicalities of life. You have long, sustained prayer, and then you have arrow prayers. You have your chapter one prayer, and then you have your chapter two prayers. But this is the thing. Commentators will say the arrow prayers of chapter two, if they're genuine and real, tend to flow out of the sustained prayers of chapter one. Now, let's try to press this in terms of a little bit of uh, an application here. Because Derek Kidner, the commentator, once said this. Such reflex responses as this do not just occur. They are the result of a life lived in the presence of God's presence day by day. Nehemiah prayed this way because he was always praying this way. And so think about your life here. My guess would be that most of us don't really pray too much. Now, maybe that's wrong, and I pray that you do. Maybe you're not really good at prayer. The second most common type of prayer, I bet, is probably the arrow prayers. God, help me get out of traffic. Help the weather to be nice. God, please, just a 10-second prayer. And that's good, too. But what this passage shows us is that your arrow prayers have to flow out of your foundational, sustaining prayers. Now, think about it this way. You can't just be Robin Hood in your prayers. You can't just be shooting arrows. Or maybe closer at home, you can't be Legolas. You can't just shoot arrows and like all day just shooting arrows to God and making requests. Maybe a little bit closer to home. You can't be Hawkeye. You can't just have these arrows that just shooting prayers to God throughout, help me get the promotion, help traffic to be good, help the weather to be good. I pray that my children will listen well. God, help my parents to say yes so I can hang out with my friends. Things that you should actually pray, you should be shooting arrows to God throughout your day. But you can't just be doing 
archery. You need also to be a building contractor. You need to lay, slowly and surely, the foundation of prayer like chapter 1, because that foundational life-giving prayer will lead to your error prayer. Now, you could think about it in terms of a child and a parent. Kid goes up to his parent, maybe he's texting, Dad, can I get $10 for lunch? Dad, I'm going to hang out with my friend. Can, I, can you pick me up later? Dad, no, I, you know, I have a problem because my best friend at school you know, he somehow he's giving me the cold shoulder. I don't know how to act to him. Give me guidance, Dad. So he's texting. Do you know what that is? That's basically arrow prayers. But as a parent, if you had a child that did this and your child never talked to you, you never had late-night conversations with your child and you're talking, you're laughing, you're crying, you're going through all the emotions, you're just enjoying life, then you don't have the chapter one prayer. You have to have, as a parent, you would want with your child those life-giving, life-changing those life-sustaining moments of an hour conversation with your children that you could laugh and cry and share about life and enjoy one another's company, and you would also want the texting to grow out of that. That's basically what we have here. You have chapter one prayer of building the foundation. You have error prayers in chapter two. Nehemiah was like this. When you squeezed him, when life squeezed Nehemiah, prayer came out. You know, that's what we have to consider for ourselves. When life squeezes you, what comes out? Anxiety, fear, control. When life squeezes you, anger. When life squeezes you, harsh words. When life squeezes you, you retract and you cower because you're deep, debilitated. When life squeezes you, what comes out? Well, for Nehemiah, because he is a covenant child in a relationship with Jesus, the gospel has changed and transformed him to such a way that he could be part of the covenant promises of God the gospel made Nehemiah, imperfect as he is, a person who prays when life came around and squeezes him. Arrow prayers and foundational prayers. Oswald Chambers says this, If someone said our prayer is meager, it is because we regard it as being supplemental and not fundamental. So if your prayer life is meager, it's probably because you think it's supplemental to life when the Bible tells you it's fundamental. This leads us to our last point. How do you apply practical spiritual realities? Well, we see that in the moment of stress and anxiety and fear, you still trust God, that you have arrow prayers to God. And lastly, Nehemiah, he's a planner. Now, what I'm saying if you're a planner, that's better and godlier than those who don't plan and sort of shoot from the hip. That's not the point, and I'm going to show you why. But he plans. Dependent praying comes from, leads to deliberate planning. I would actually argue in a life leadership, a leadership lesson in Nehemiah, the extent to which our leadership is going to be effective is directly related to the heart posture of our life towards God. Does that make sense? The effectiveness of our leadership is directly related and a result and a fruit of our heart posture towards God. Now, one thing to know about Nehemiah is that he's really savvy. And I'm not saying that if you want to be godlier, you got to be more savvy. That's not the point. But it affirms that Nehemiah is really savvy. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to persuade people. He doesn't just make his requests. He's very good at relating to people. He's really savvy. A couple of quick notes to this. The first thing is that when he talks about the ruined walls of Jerusalem, the temple, he doesn't call it in architectural terms and says, I want to rebuild my fence Artaxerxes, help me to build the fence of my house. He doesn't do it that way. He's much more relational and savvy. He actually refers to a city as graves. 
grave sites because he knew to the Persian culture, especially Artaxerxes, they revered ancestors and graves were sacred sites. So he says, help me to rebuild the graves of my forefathers because he knew that Artaxerxes could relate to this. He also was savvy enough to not make this a political issue, but to make it a personal one because he was a cupbearer and had a personal relationship. So he never calls his home city Jerusalem because then you mix politics into the discussion. And we all know how politics can really make a, a heated argument when we get into it. But he was savvy enough just to call it a city. So he's very relational. He waited for his opportunity. Some commentators even note he waited for the king to be next to the queen because some historians say the queen probably had a strong personality. The queen probably liked Nehemiah. The queen probably had influence over the king. So if Nehemiah was going to make a big ask, he's going to wait for the queen to be next to the king because his chances were a little bit better. So yes, he's a bit calculating. Yes, he's very relational. Yes, he's two steps ahead because he plans. Now let's look at his plan. Uh, read with me verses 7 to 8. It says there, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, if it pleases you, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So he's asking for permission and authority. He's looking for a fast pass. And then secondly, he says in verse 8, And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, natural resources, and the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And he also asks time off. So that's his plan. He's two steps ahead. He's thinking, 900 miles, I'm going to need permission to go through different provinces. 900 miles, I'm going to need a lot of timber and raw resources. And he's getting, he's planning, he's strategic, he's an organizational genius because he's a man of faith and he prepares. Now, as a quick side note, I love this insight. You know, it doesn't mean that people who are godly are planned better. And this is why. Nehemiah and Ezra are always taken, Nehemiah and Ezra are always taken together. And did you know that Ezra, in the book of Ezra, led one of the uh, post-exilic charges and returned back to the homeland? And in Ezra chapter 11, or Ezra chapter 8, Ezra refused military support. And if you read chapter 8, Ezra says, I don't need military protection or support because I believe God is my protector. So Ezra said no to military support as an act of faith. But then when you look at Nehemiah, he's going back to Jerusalem. What does he do? He requests military protection and military escort. Why? Because he says it's an act of faith. So you have Ezra who acts out of faith and says, I don't need military protection. Then you have Nehemiah who acts out of faith and says, please give me as much military protection. Well, which way is right? The point is, there's not one right way, and therefore you could go in either way. So some people are just gifted leaders in different ways. Ezra, maybe he's not much of a planner, even though he was a scholar. Nehemiah, he's a strategic genius, and he plans. So it helps us to be a little bit gracious as we look at each other's lives. Some of you are like, why don't you plan your life and get it all together? Now, don't you have everything financially and your schedule all planned out? Because that's like being a good steward. And people who plan are God's people, and planners are people who God loves more. But that's not really true, because Ezra at least intimates that some people have a different expression of faith. But both are considered acts of faith, and people are covenantally connected to God. Here's the question, friends. Who is responsible for rebuilding Jerusalem? Is it Nehemiah? Is it Artaxerxes? 
in all their planning, or is it God? Who is responsible for rebuilding the temple? The answer is yes. Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, and God. Is Nehemiah's plan, is King Artaxerxes' command, and it's the Lord's good hand that all are responsible for the rebuilding of the temple. It's what we call here the doctrine of God's providence. Well, let me try to explain how that works. Now, I read this online, a combination of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism on the doctrine of providence. This is what it is, and we see it real time in this story. Let me read it for us. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And by his almighty and ever-present power, he upholds heaven and earth and all the creatures and so governs them so that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but as from his Father's hand. Providence. Nehemiah prepares because he knows God works through his preparation. In the passage we've read, Nehemiah says, So I prayed to the God of heaven, I said to the king. I prayed to God, and I said to the king. It almost seems like these two things happening at the same time. I prayed to God of heaven, and I prayed to the king. I asked the king, is God's sovereignty and human responsibility? His prayer wasn't an excuse not to act, but his prayer empowered him to act. So this tells us, friends, in the everyday decisions that you make, you're not a robot. You have real choices, human agency, but God works through the details of your life. I prayed to the God of heaven, but I also asked the king. Well, look at this. Verse 5, it says, if it pleases the king. Nehemiah asked that he would be sent to Judah. Then in verse 6, it says, so it pleased the king to send me. And then in verse 7, it says, if it pleases the king, that he would give him letters and supplies. And then verse 8 says, the king granted me what I asked for because the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, we're going to follow this pattern, Nehemiah saying, I got resources, I got time, I got manpower, I got military protection, and all these things. Nehemiah says, I got this because it pleased the king. So it made it sound like King Artaxerxes is the reason why Nehemiah could go back. But then he has the cherry on top, the capstone, and what does Nehemiah say at the end? The king gave me all things because the hand of God was upon me. That ultimately is God's power and sovereignty. Human agency and divine providence. That's how they work together. You have a real choice, but God works through your real choices. Now, I heard a story once years ago from a pastor, and he was talking about how he had to ask his uh, girlfriend's dad for her hand in marriage. And he was saying her dad was stern, strict, strong, and tough, so he's super nervous. How do I ask for my girlfriend's hand in marriage? and get permission from her dad. So he described a situation in which he went up to the dad and said, Sir, your daughter is wonderful. I feel so honored and pleasure to be able to marry her. Thank you so much for trusting me with your daughter. And he said the dad very sternly, without even blinking an eye or actually smiling and grinning, just turns to him and says, I don't trust you. I trust in God. He got half of it right. You can't just say I trust in God because God works through people. You can't say you just trust in God and say, I'm not going to trust my small group leader or my, 
my pastor, my elders. I'm just going to trust in God. You have a defunct understanding of who God is because trusting in God means you trust in the way that he works through plans. He says, if it pleases the king, give me money. If it pleases the king, give me people. If it pleases the king, give me resources. And at the end of it all, he says, it pleased the king, but the reason it pleased the king, because the right hand of God was on top of it. We understand the right hand, don't we? We always say things, do you need a hand with that? Or we say to that person, that person is his right hand, man's right hand man. We understand what a hand means. In the Bible, the hand means someone who actually cares and comes down and gets down and dirty. The hand actually creates and heals. The hand actually is a, a picture of grace and power, but the hand also means in the Bible blessing and cursing because you know why? You can have a helping hand to your covenant people and to those who reject God, it's the back of the hand down to damnation. That's what the hand represents, even to the point where we see that Jesus comes and stands on the right hand of God. So when it says that his right hand is upon him, he means this. God cares about the details of your life. He comes down in his hand. He heals you. He helps you. He sustains you. He lifts you up. His hand means that God isn't just far away, but he's intimately connected to the details of your life because his hand came down. And do you know how his hand came down most clearly and climactically? And finally, his hand came down in the very person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, who took on your sin and mine and united us to himself and gave us his righteousness and that's why we could proclaim, as the book of Romans does, that nothing can separate us from the love of God because the hand of God came down and got down and dirty in our sin and our messiness because Jesus was sent down into this world and lifted us up from the messiness and the murkiness and the dirtiness of our very own sin so that we could stand in righteousness as we are living in the rebuilt kingdom of God's heavenly throne. John chapter 10 Verses 27 to 29, this is what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, this is kind of confusing. It's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. It says, well, the people that God has given me, my disciples, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, the people that God has given Jesus, the disciples in the church, no one's going to snatch them out of God's hand. And then he says, you know what? It's the one and same hand. Jesus' hand is upon you. By faith, you receive his helping hand. Christ's sheep, the elect, see Jesus' words, and he says, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. I hear his voice, and he hears my voice. I need saving, and he's my Savior forever. No one can snatch my life out of Jesus' hands. This no one, in fact, in some ways is universal for all the people except the gospel. Because if we are in the hand of Jesus Christ, not even our own sin or the devil or the powers of the principalities of the air can ever take us from him, because as Dr. R.C. Sprawl has once said in his commentary on John, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. His right hand is upon us. And that is the power and the reality and our identity in which we could find relevance and meaningfulness in life. The right hand never leaves us, and that's why we could trust him, because he holds on to us. That's why we could pray to him these arrow prayers, because he brings us in by his hand and ushers us into the kingdom. And that's why we can prepare in this life and be thoughtful 
because our preparation, however it may go, like Ezra or Nehemiah, is guided by the right hand of God in Jesus Christ, his son. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time, and we love you with all our hearts. And we thank you that you give us your hand to pull us out from the drowning of our own sin, a hand that comforts us and pats us on our back when we need some comforting, when tears flow from our eyes and our hearts are broken, a hand that just helps us with daily life when we just need help with our time and logistics and weather and providence of all that you are in control of. We thank you, Lord, because you are good and that you guarantee the help of your right hand because you sent your son Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.